Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. In the age of Donald J. Trump, it's, it's increasingly hard to separate appearance from reality, particularly in the age of the pandemic. It, it sometimes seems as if we're actually living in Camus' The Plague, where politics and pathology have become so mixed together that they're impossible to separate. I think one group of people who are sufficiently hard-headed to make sense of the Trump age in and out of the pandemic are conservatives, the never-Trump people who are traditionally associated with the Republican Party and who have, for one reason or other, been horrified by Donald J. Trump. Um, David Frum comes to mind, Max Boot, uh, Bill Crystal, and another hard-headed, smart conservative is John J. Pitney Jr. He teaches politics at Claremont McKenna uh, University College, and um, he is the author of uh, a very provocative new book, *Un-American: The Fate, the Fake Patriotism of Donald J. Trump*. Uh, John. Why is it so hard in the Trump age to separate reality and the fake? Well, uh, one short answer is the Internet. Uh, A great deal of disinformation is on the Internet, and I'm not the first to uh, notice this, uh, but people have their own information silos. If you're a Trump supporter, uh, you can watch Fox News, log on to foxnews.com, read Breitbart, uh, subscribe to Trump's Twitter feed. And uh, that reality is very different from the reality that the rest of us experience. And it's uh, something that Trump is actively encouraged, of course, with his Twitter feed, endorsing uh, various conspiracy theories and linking to other sites. And uh, the thing I noticed, it's very different from the attitude of the founders of this country. Uh, A famous phrase in the Declaration of Independence is, we hold these truths to be self-evident. The founders actually believed that there was a truth that we could aspire to learn. But uh, John, there's always been alternative media. Um, Newspapers have always been historically extremely biased. What is it about the internet that muddles reality and appearance so dramatically? Uh, That's a terrific question. And uh, the answer is before the internet, it was uh, difficult to avoid exposure to alternative points of view. Uh, If you read your daily newspaper in print, the old-fashioned dead tree newspaper, you were going to encounter opinions that uh, were different from yours. If you watched uh, the news in the 1960s, 70s, 80s, you were going to get, uh, again, a variety of views. What's uh, unusual about the internet is that it enables you to silo yourself in a way that's much more efficient and effective than ever before. Uh, And that's why, uh, one reason why 
uh, Trump's hardcore of support remains so committed to him. They can easily tune out other kinds of information that don't uh, uh, comport with their pre-existing beliefs. John, what is it about Trump that brings out the best, and, and I mean that in a, in, a, in a very complimentary way, about conservatives like yourself, David Frum, Max Boot, um, at the beginning of your book, you, you, you make it clear that you have been or you were a lifelong Republican until Donald J. Trump. What does he bring out in traditional Republicans that makes you so angry, so outraged? He contradicts so much of what the country stands for and what the party purported to stand for. Uh, he has explicitly said that he doesn't believe that all men are created equal. And that is a foundational belief in, uh, of the United States. Uh, when it comes to Republicans, he has trashed Ronald Reagan. Uh, he's trashed uh, the things that Ronald Reagan stood for. Take the North American Free Trade Agreement. It's not too much of a stretch to say that was Ronald Reagan's idea. In fact, it was the issue with which he started his 1980 campaign. Uh, and uh, I remember when I was a staffer on Capitol Hill during the 1980s, I spent a lot of time arguing in, in various writings for the Republicans uh, for the merits of free trade. And I felt very good about that because I thought we had a very, very solid case and Trump throws it all away. Uh, also during the 1980s, we like to think of ourselves as being very realistic, hard-headed about the Soviet Union. And now we have a president who is a Vladimir Putin fanboy. Uh, and that in particular has, uh, has driven a lot of, uh, former Republicans into a different political place. Let's get to the core of your book. You write about the fake patriotism of, of Trump. Um, is he just a brilliant salesman? Is he just making something up to convince people that he is in fact a patriot when, at least in your mind, he's anything but? Yes. Um, uh, he's a clever salesman. Uh, I, I think given his intellectual limitations, I'd, I'd hesitate to use the word brilliant, but uh, <laughs> he's effective. And uh, one of the things he typically does is at, at rallies is literally fondle the American flag, uh, which uh, is uh, really enraging to people who actually respect what the flag stand for, stands for. Uh, and uh, in addition to having worked in the Republican Party, I uh, spent many years working on an introductory American politics textbook. And this is one of the themes. What does patriotism mean? And uh, one of the things we argued is that patriotism isn't simply about using empty slogans. It's about things such as devotion to the principles of the country, serving other Americans. And Donald Trump is the very opposite of that. You write in your book that uh, Trump's patriotism is, is, is of a, a reality show type. He is, of course, the ultimate reality show president, perhaps the first real internet president. What is it in the American psyche, or at least in 40 or 45% of American voters, that convinced them that reality show patriotism is actually real patriotism? Uh, another great question. I think a couple of things are at play here. One with the reality show, 
it's something that the mass media didn't pick up on until too late, is that for years, a large segment of the American people experienced Donald Trump through a reality show. And uh, if you didn't know anything else about him, it might have seemed very convincing that he was an effective and decisive business leader. Uh, in fact, the actual makers of the reality show later acknowledged that uh, it was that portrayal was largely fictional. Uh, as to the source of his appeal, a lot of it is negative. It's not so much uh, that uh, they like uh, some kind of broad principle, but rather he directs their animosity toward visible enemies, uh, whether it's China in, in recent days or Hillary Clinton or Barack Obama. Uh, he's able to energize the uh, reaction of them or us. And uh, that accounts for a large portion of his continued popularity among a large segment of the population. Uh, John, you're you're a professor at Claremont McKenna College, as I said earlier, a very fine college. You're used to giving students grades, A, B, Cs, Ds perhaps even. Does the American people get a D in the age of Donald J. Trump? Uh, some do. Uh, I wouldn't necessarily apply that grade to the entire uh, to the entire country, uh, but. Uh, you have to say a lot of people aren't paying the kind of attention they need to pay. Now, part of that is, to put it bluntly, uh, laziness on the part of some voters. Some of it is a failure of civic education. Uh, one of the points I make in the book is his disrespect and disregard for the U.S. Constitution. And a shocking number of Americans have no knowledge of the Constitution. Uh, a large number of Americans, for example, can't uh, identify the three branches of government. And so uh, when he attacks the Constitution, literally many, many Americans are, aren't aware really of what he's doing. That's a huge problem. In the age of, pa of the pandemic, as I said at the, in the introduction, um, it seems as if we've sort of fallen into a, a, a Camus-like world where the, the pathological plague and the political plague have been mixed up. You wrote your book before the coronavirus crisis, but you end quite presciently. You say at the end of the book, we have learned that tradition, and, and this is, of course, in terms of warning about the dangers of the Trump age, we have learned that traditions and norms are like internal organs. We only appreciate them when they stop working. In the age of the pandemic, is there this weird confluence of uh, medical and political pathology? Yes, very much so. In the past, when we had crises, whether they be uh, pandemics or natural disasters, uh, we had presidents who at least did not uh, appeal to our, our worst instincts, at least in the early stages. Even in the 1918 pandemic, where Woodrow Wilson uh, was shamefully uh, quiescent, uh, he, he said almost nothing about it. In fact, uh, there's some evidence he even got the Spanish flu. Uh, but uh, he didn't go out making uh, statements, blaming other people, attacking the other party for spreading the Spanish flu. He just didn't do that even on his worst days. Uh, what makes Trump uh, unusual in such a departure from norms is uh, his casual effort to politicize 
this crisis, saying that Democrats want it to get worse just for the sake of making him look bad. Uh, we've never been in a situation like this. And uh, where it leads, I don't know. But it's, we're certainly not in a good place now. What well, if you don't know, John, I don't know who does. I'm going to force you to make some predictions. Obviously, it's impossible to predict the future, but get a sense of where we're going. How disastrous do you think a pandemic Trump has had? He's been, ever since he he started running for president, he's been written off by all pundits, both on the left and the right. Uh, I've lost count of the number of pieces I've read in the few, in the last couple of months, writing him off, saying now he's now he's in free fall, now he's not going to recover. Uh, what do you make of his his treatment of the crisis? Can he recover from this? I wouldn't rule it out. Number one, it's possible that uh, the economy might be in some kind of recovery by the fall. I certainly hope so. Uh, it's possible that the uh, pandemic might abate to a certain degree, that we won't be having as many new cases or uh, the same number of deaths in the fall. If that's the case, uh, he will obviously take credit. He's already in a bizarre way, setting, uh, resetting expectations by saying, well, if I hadn't acted, millions of people would have died. That's nonsense, but a lot of people believe it because of the information silos. Um, another uh, reason not to count them out is that the Democratic candidate isn't, uh, isn't necessarily the strongest. Joe Biden uh, is uh, an elderly man. He's been making mistakes for a long time in politics and before this book, my previous book was one about the 1988 election in which Biden was a candidate and had to withdraw, among other reasons, for plagiarizing a speech from Neil Kinnock. Uh, so you could argue Democrats haven't necessarily put up the ideal candidate and Trump is going to exploit every potential weakness that Biden has, not to mention inventing some. Uh, so I think the odds are against Trump, but I certainly wouldn't count him out either. We've learned that one of the most terrifying things about COVID-19 is that even if you survive, it damages your internal organs and, and can make you sick for the rest of your life. Uh, how long term in your mind is the damage to American democracy that's been uh, created by, by Donald J. Trump? Is this a four-year nightmare that will wake up with, with, with maybe a President Biden and we'll just kind of forget it and say, well, that was four years of craziness, but now we're back to normalcy. Or in your mind, has he done long-term structural damage to the American Republic and to American democracy? I'm afraid he's done long-term damage. Uh, and it goes in many different directions. Our international standing uh, I think has suffered a permanent hit because people around the world will always remember us as the country that chose Donald Trump. That's not a good reputation to have. The economic damage is enormous. Uh, the coronavirus, of course, has led to a massive expansion of the deficit and the debt, but those were going up already because of a truly irresponsible uh, tax bill. It cut taxes mostly for the wealthy uh, without corresponding spending cuts. Uh, and we're going to be paying, literally paying the price for that for years to come. In terms of our uh, democratic norms, 
uh, politicians have learned all the things you can get away with that um, people just assume before Trump, uh, people in public life just didn't do. He's done them. And unfortunately, we're going to see his kind of politics again. Uh, so I think uh, we can start to recover next year, uh, but it's going to be a long road to political health. How lonely is it, John, as a conservative these days? Uh, I know you have a, a small group of intellectuals who, as I suggested earlier, are, have been very effective in critiquing Trump. I'm not sure whether you have, though, a political constituency. You begin your book uh, explaining why you won't vote for Trump. Might you become a Democrat? Are people like Fromm, Boot, Crystal, and yourself uh, perhaps re representative of a new kind of moderate uh, group within the Democratic Party? Uh, it's possible. Uh, I'm a registered independent, or in uh, California uh, jargon, no party preference. Uh, I expect to stay there. Uh, as a conservative, I have misgivings about uh, some of the stands of, uh, of leading Democrats. Uh, certainly, those differences are trivial compared with concerns about Trump. Uh, but uh, I wouldn't feel totally comfortable in the Democratic Party. So like uh, other fellow never-Trumpers, I'm politically homeless right now. There really isn't a place in which we're uh, truly comfortable. And it's, uh, it's a, a relatively small island that we're on. Uh, on the one hand, most uh, Republicans seem to be sticking with Trump. On the other hand, uh, Democrats uh, are happy to make common cause with the never-Trumpers, but uh, both sides recognize that there are political differences that remain. Uh, so um, we take comfort in, uh, in Ibsen's uh, uh, aptly titled Enemy of the People, uh, the final line of which is, uh, the strongest man is he who stands most alone. John, we've had a number of uh, political thinkers from around the world who uh, have written about the, the broader crisis of democracy, from Ecet uh, Temelkuren, the, the Turkish uh, columnist who's a refugee in Croatia, to Soliozel, to a number of thinkers in Asia. Uh, to what extent is the crisis of Trump's America a crisis of global democracy from uh, from Erdogan in Turkey to Bolsonaro in Brazil to D Duterte in Philippines? We actually also had Maria Ressa on the show last year. Well, I'm not a comparativist, so I, I, I speak uh, tentatively. Uh, I, I know people in my department who are much better qualified to speak of such things than I am, but... I do notice that Trump himself has uh, noticed similarities with these other leaders. He's spoken very highly of Duterte. At one time, he justified him by saying he has uh, very high approval ratings. Uh, same with Bolsonaro. Uh, and uh, when he says that uh, he regards these people almost as twins, uh, that's a very disturbing sign of something going on much more broadly. Uh, and uh, another, I, another area where I've done research is, uh, is autism and uh, vaccine hesitancy. We see that in other countries throughout the world as well, often associated with right-wing parties. Uh, so while the problem in the United States is particularly prominent and severe, uh, it's part of a global phenomenon, a very disturbing one at that. Finally, John, uh, I need a short reading list from you um, 
on uh, on on books that might help people make sense of the the weirdness, this confusion of appearance and reality in contemporary politics. Uh, as I said earlier, your book, uh, Un-American, The Fake Patriotism of Donald J., J., Donald J. Trump is a good beginning. But what other books might people read as they're still stuck inside during the pandemic? Well, for a broad global view, uh, there's a wonderful book titled How Democracies Die by Stephen Levitsky and Daniel Ziblatt, uh, which deals with the uh, uh, decline of democracy in other countries and uh, ties it to the Trump phenomenon. Very disturbing book, very profound book. Uh, for um, lighter reading, uh, another by a fellow never-Trumper, Rick Wilson, titled uh, appropriately, Everything Trump Touches Dies, uh, <laughs> which is something that he has frequently reported on, uh, recorded on Twitter. And of course, David Frum, whom you mentioned, has a wonderful book titled uh, Trumpocracy. Uh, I actually uh, uh, slightly overlapped with, uh, with David Frum. He was an undergraduate at Yale while I was a graduate student, uh, didn't really know him well, and uh, little did I know where we would both end up. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.